0: Welcome to episode 4 of the Voicemails from History podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Amin, and today's episode features a voicemail taken from the Kashmiri American poet called Agha Ali, reflecting on the state of the Indian subcontinent following the partition of 1947. He writes, From a district near Jammu, stumbling from his Urdu, he comes, the victim of a continent broken in two in 1947. He mentions the minced air he ate, while men dissolved in alphabets of blood, in syllables of death, of hate. I only remember half the world, that was my village, the rest I forget. The partition of India in 1947 is often written with a capital P, a widespread acknowledgement of how India and Pakistan, and later Bangladesh, hold a specific monopoly on the word, the moment which led to their creation. The partition is also sometimes called the Radcliffe line, named after the British barrister Cyril Radcliffe who drew up the new map. Now the Radcliffe or partition line is actually two lines. If you can refer to the map I've chosen for the episode's cover art, British India was split up into three main chunks if you like. India became the middle portion, to the west became West Pakistan and to the east was East Pakistan, which years later in 1971, became the country of Bangladesh as we know in the present. Sandwiched between these two new states were two significant provinces of Punjab to the west and Bengal to the east. These were historically important regions, rich in agriculture and developing industry, where Hindus, Sikhs and Muslims had cultivated and lived on the land in relative, let's go on with life vibes, for generations during and before British rule. The prospect of dividing these regions, and India as a whole, was a mammoth and nigh on unthinkable task. Nevertheless, political manoeuvres, vested interests, and willful ignorance thundered ahead. Whichever historian you choose to read from, all will at some point spend some time labouring over the fact of how ridiculously short the process of drawing up these lines was. On the whole, it took them six weeks. Now, as historians, we like to break up the causation questions in history into long-term causes, short-term causes, and then immediate and or trigger causes. We like to break things down and find connections between events which happened five years ago, then one year ago, then over a few weeks, and then we argue about the trigger cause. In the case of partition, that becomes quite difficult to do when we're dealing with a six-week process and the insistence on such speed flew in the face of rationality. Evan Jenkins, who was the governor of Punjab at the time, and generally thought to be quite a successful administrator in India, tried to persuade the boundary commissions responsible for for partition that more time was needed because, quote, there would be appalling confusion in the time stated, and it would be an impossible task to make a clean job of. The general consensus among historians is that partition, which refers to the splitting up of territory, is a specifically modern policy, traced back to a conscious decision made by the collapsing imperial powers shortly before and after 1945. In their book, A Transnational History of Partition, Dubnov and Robson acknowledge three case studies the partition of India in 1947, which we will discuss today. The second is Palestine, in 1937, following the Peel Commission which proposed Palestine to be partitioned three ways, into an Arab state, a Jewish state and a neutral zone. The third case study is a bit earlier of 1920 Ireland, when following the Irish War of Independence, Ireland was partitioned into two self-governing spheres, the Republic and Northern Ireland. And in all of these cases, surprise, surprise, it was the British Empire dealing out the partition card with all the intellect and rationality of a fortune teller. Furthermore, all three examples are still experiencing the consequences, and until at least a decade ago, it was still very much living memory. Indeed, Palestine is still under siege and occupation in 2021, Ireland has experienced turmoil and considerable violence post-Brexit negotiations, and Pakistan and India have still not formed a united neighbourhood watch group association. The story of partition and independence in India is a schizoid one, as Yasmin Khan puts it. On the one hand, it marked the end of British colonial rule, and on the other, it was accompanied with the death of one to two million people, thousands injured and maimed, anywhere from 12 to 15 million displaced, and unquantifiable psychological damage. There is still a mire of darkness and secrecy about what happened in those fateful weeks of 1947, when reports were coming in of children's corpses, of pregnant women left dismembered on the pavements, of bloated and disfigured bodies floating in the rivers and the canals, and the abduction of over 80,000 women. Margaret Bourke-White was an American photographer, one of America's first female war photographers, and she was keen to document events in India, and she noted in her famous pictures that, quote, the streets of Calcutta reminded me of Buchenwald concentration camp. Now, in her article, Joya Chatterjee explores the surgical metaphor, as partition has often been described as being a medical operation or an amputation, and that the knee borders were incision scars she argues that that the metaphor is incredibly misleading, because to describe it as a surgery implies a couple of things. First, surgery implies that it was necessary, as if the partition or the demarcation would solve the communal disease rampant in India's bloodstream. Second, that sacrifice was necessary to move forward. So often, um, Pakistan has been viewed as being the diseased limb that had to be removed or amputated in order for India to finally begin to heal. And finally, the surgical metaphor implies that India was passive in the process, as if she was at the complete mercy of the British 10 blade, and therefore, by extension, it gives the impression that Indians were not responsible for the ensuing consequences. And this surgery metaphor lends well to both the British side of the story, that, oh, we had to do it to save India. And on the flip side, the metaphor lends well to the nationalist Indians, who cite partition as a divide and conquer method of the British. And there is also a lot of hate thrown at Jinnah, who we'll discuss later, from the Indians because of the perceived collusions he had with the British during World War II, and how his actions seemingly backstabbed the prospect of Indian unity. However, Chatterjee shows that in reality, India's nationalist leaders from both India and Pakistan were actively involved and had a considerable amount of agency in the tragedy that followed. I particularly wanted to use her work for this topic because it challenges a lot of the victimisation attitudes prevalent in anti-colonial circles. Yes, the modern European empires are guilty as charged, but so are the colluders and those who pandered to their demands or exploited them for vested interests. So, in 1947, Pakistan, a new state, celebrated its independence on the 14th of August, and India celebrated on the 15th of August. The bloodshed in those following few weeks took India and the world by surprise. With Partition, there was a fatal breakdown of trust and transparency between the elites and the citizens and how criminally ignorant or naive or selfish the people who were in charge of carving up the subcontinent. I will begin by outlining the names of the individuals and groups who were involved in the process. I'm then going to go through Joya Chatterjee's article, which I'm using as the main material for this episode. She is looking at the telegrams, the meeting notes and the political back and forths between the members of what we'll call Team Partition. So, without further ado, let's begin. Prior to 1947, India was under British control and had been for nearly 190 years. In the run-up to World War II, there was a growing movement in India for independence. And there are two political parties which we need to know about. One called the Indian National Congress and the other was called the All India Muslim League. They have their origins in the 1880s, but for the sake of time, we're going to pick up from the start of the 1940s. Now, the Indian National Congress had begun as a movement for Indian independence as a whole, whilst the All-India Muslim League was gathering support for a Muslim-led party in India. They were noticing the dominance of Hindu elites in the Indian National Congress and were anxious that in a new state of India, Muslim interests would not be best represented. The two parties had their individual figureheads. The Indian National Congress was led in part by Gandhi, leader of the non-violent protest against the British, and Jawaharlal Nehru, also an independence activist who would later become India's first Prime Minister. It was the Indian National Congress which had launched the, quote, Quit India Movement in 1942, which campaigned for an end to British rule and was a direct rebuttal of the Brits' unconsulted decision to include India in World War II. And on the other side was the All India Muslim League, who ended up with having Muhammad Ali Jinnah as their figurehead. Jinnah was also an activist in demanding for Indian independence. As early as World War I, Jinnah was working within both the Congress and the Muslim League in a bid to secure what he believed was Hindu-Muslim unity. In 1916, the Lucknow Pact was signed, a significant milestone between the Hindus and Muslims, which agreed on a set of constitutional reforms which gave Muslims considerable footing in the emerging Indian government. However, an agreement like this was not repeated between these two groups, as the years hurtled towards 1947. Why? Well, fundamentally, the Indian National Congress declared itself to be a secular form of government, working for all members of India, whereas the Muslim League defined itself more in terms of working for Indian Muslims. And Muhammad Ali Jinnah, initially working for both parties, ended up walking firmly over to the Muslim League aisle by the 40s, advocating for a Muslim homeland. I don't have time to dissect Jinnah himself, but he was staunchly secular and resented mixing religion or spirituality with politics. So there's lots of debate about why he ended up throwing his support behind the Muslim League, But the two main ones that I'll mention are A. Following provincial elections in 1937, which led to Indian National Congress members refusing to form coalitions with the Muslim League members. And B, Gandhi's rise to fame in the 20s and his mixing of spirituality with politics led to animosity between Jinnah and Gandhi, with Jinnah becoming increasingly sidelined in the Indian National Congress. Nevertheless, the main focus for us today is to remember how the Congress and the League presented themselves. Congress declared itself to be secular, that it would protect and work for all people, regardless of their ethnicity or religion. While the League declared the same thing, but also openly declared um, or advocated for a specifically Muslim state. And at this point, it's worth noting two things. First, in my opinion, based on my reading of the Congress, is that while it declared itself to be secular, its actions indicated that it would greatly favour Hindu dominance. Its political actions showed that it was not going to cooperate with the Muslim League or show openness with sharing power. Perhaps that was due to the Mughal legacy. They were a dynasty that ruled the Hindu majority subcontinent from the 16th to the 17th century by Muslim leaders, or the fact that during British rule, Hindus were favoured more so than um, the Muslims were. Anyway, that's just one theory and requires more detail for a later episode. The second point is that when Pakistan, as an idea, came about, i.e. the first modern Muslim state, that doesn't mean that non-Muslims aren't given rights or protection. On the contrary, from an Islamic viewpoint, they would be safeguarded. What actually happened in reality was a different thing altogether. But it's worth noting that in Jinnah's first presidential address on the August 11th, 1947, he stated the following, which reinforces his secular view for Pakistan. He said in his speech... Quote, this mighty subcontinent with all kinds of inhabitants has been brought under a plan which is titanic, unknown and unparalleled. I know there are people who do not quite agree with the division of India and the partition of Punjab and Bengal, but we must work together and know that every one of you is first, second and last a citizen of this state. You are free to go to your temples, you are free to go to your mosques or any other place of worship you may belong to any religion, caste, or creed, that has nothing to do with the business of the state. Now, let's go through the British side of the group, of which there are two key figures. The first is Lord Mountbatten, who became Viceroy of India, which meant he had the authority to rule the colonial territory on behalf of the king or queen. He was tasked, in March 1947, to come up with a plan on how Britain could gracefully exit from India. The second key figure was the British barrister Sir Cyril, Sir Cyril Radcliffe. I actually haven't checked how to pronounce his name, but I'll go with Cyril. So Cyril Radcliffe, who was given the task to draw up the border itself. Now Mountbatten chose Radcliffe due to Radcliffe's, quote, "...inherent impartiality and professionalism." End quote. Now Radcliffe had never been to India, not even on like a holiday. And he was definitely not versed on India's vast complexities, its social orders, the religions, economic classes, the caste systems, uh, people's livelihoods in different regions. The guy hadn't travelled further east than Paris itself. And so to return to Chatterjee's surgical metaphor, Cyril Radcliffe was less of an experienced surgeon and more of a first year, first day on surgical rotation medical student, who was going to get lost finding the surgery ward at the Northern General Hospital, let alone be able to walk into the right OR. While it's shocking that they appointed a most ignorant individual to complete this mammoth task of dividing the territory of over 88 million people, it was thought that the distance would help in making the process impartial and unaffected by party politics. Whatever the self-deluded motivation, it fell short of its aims to make the process smooth or peaceful. And as we will see, it was definitely affected by party politics. So let's turn firmly to Chatterjee's work now and her analysis of how these fateful six weeks went down. There are three set dates, all in 1947, which you need to keep in mind. The first one is the 3rd of June. On the 3rd of June, the Viceroy, Lord Mountbatten, issued a now famous statement declaring that two boundary commissions would be set up a Punjab commission, remember, that's the province to the west, and a Bengal commission, the province to the east. Their task is to go about partitioning these two provinces to make an India and a west and east Pakistan. So that was June 3rd. On the 8th of July, the lawyer, Cyril Radcliffe, arrives freshly through and through. He is told he has to present the final partition details from the Punjab and Bengal commissions by the 15th of August. So in a matter of three months, partition was decided upon and drawn up. So how were Mountbatten, Radcliffe and the commissions going to achieve this? Let's cite the Punjab as an example, where the population distribution of Hindus, Sikhs and Muslims was so mixed and interspersed, as is normal, that no line could be drawn north to south that made sense from a communal stance. And then what about the roads, the railways, electricity lines? industries and farms, schools and, you know, places of worship, how are they going to draw a line through all of that? So far from being a vertical line, um, straight from the halfway point, it was going to have to cut across horizontally as well. But when it crosses horizontally, how much do you give to either side, and on what basis? So partition was decided upon in India ostensibly as a way to satisfy communal demands for self-autonomy, the Muslims would have their own region to govern, as would the Hindus and Sikhs. But that principle falls flat when you look at the 3D reality of the world and how territory hasn't been structured according to the different religious or ethnic groups. So right from the start, the standoff between communal versus territorial demarcation was going to be a hot mess. So the Punjab and Bengal commissions were agreed upon by June, after June 3rd. So who was going to be on them? Chatterjee explains how Jinnah initially proposed that the Commission should have three impartial non-Indians appointed by the newly formed United Nations. However, the British were not keen. It would make it look as if they were incapable of dealing with the task and, in the emerging Cold War era, the Soviets could capitalise on it as perceived weakness. The idea of the UN leading was also opposed by Nehru. Remember, he is leading the National Indian Congress. He feared a delay in the matter would mean less time for the Congress to negotiate with the British, who are perceived to be flexible and acquiescing to to Congress members. And so Nehru comes along and proposes that each commission should have two nominated persons from the Indian Congress and two from the Muslim League. And overseeing the two separate commissions would be an independent chairman, who would become Cyril Radcliffe. So already in June then, Nehru had established his influence over the process of partition. Now, Chatterjee is focusing on the Bengal Commission, so we'll discuss the key highlights of that process in the East. On the Muslim side, only the Muslim League came forward to represent the Muslims in Bengal. They were led by a faction within the party whose leader was Khawaja Nazimuddin, who had close ties with Jinnah. Nazimuddin's group wanted as much of Bengal as possible for Pakistan. They had everything to gain if they could secure it. So how did they present their case? So the first stance they took was about territorial contiguity. So this means that contiguous Muslim majority area should go to Pakistan. And if there was a Hindu majority area that was not contiguous to any other Hindu majority area, that should also go to Pakistan. On this basis, as part of their claim, with three districts which had minority Muslims in because they were far away from other majority Hindu regions. And these regions were the Chittagong hill tracks to the east and two tea-producing provinces called Darjeeling and Piguri to the north. They also made an open bid for Calcutta, insisting on economic grounds that East Pakistan should get a share of the province's revenue that was proportional to its population. In this way, they staked a claim to Calcutta as a whole, its mills, military stations, the factories and workshops because, as they said, we can't take all of East Bengal and not have its capital where all the networks and communication lines come out of. And this would, in effect, bring roughly two-thirds of the Hindi population of Bengal under East Pakistan. Their reasons were based, therefore, on territory and economy, not so much the idea of communal self-autonomy. It was also about power. Muslims constituted about 55% of the total Bengal population. If they could bring all these Muslims under their control, it would give them election wins, thereby having as much sovereignty as possible. And in a similar fashion, the Hindu members of the commission also wanted to secure territory and a viable economy whilst maintaining some semblance of a Hindu homeland. In contrast to the Muslims, the Commission had four different Hindu parties lobbying them. There was the Indian Congress, the Hindu Mahasabha, the smaller groups like the Indian Association and the New Bengal Association, and each party tried to go about their aims in different ways. The smaller parties insisted on the importance of territory, who demanded ten Hindu majority areas and two Muslim majority areas. These groups were influenced by extreme Hindu fringe groups. The New Bengal Association was itself a right-wing pressure group. Their pamphlets talked about Hindu Bengalis as a distinct race of people with a destiny to have lots of space, so territory and ethnicity were central to their aims. In contrast, the leader of the Congress party, Atul Chandragupta, pointed out that for the Hindus to demand over 57% of Bengal for a 46% population would be too much for the commission to accept. So, Congress decided that they had to put forward a more reasonable plan to have a seat at the negotiating table. And the plan that that they put forward was much more limited. It did mostly stick to contiguous Hindu majority regions. Therefore, there were notable exceptions. They had excluded the Hindu majority districts of Darjeeling and Shaopaguri, the tea producing areas which I mentioned earlier that the Muslim League wanted. One reason is that these northern areas were seen as a frontier region, as ethnically and culturally backwards. Here then, there were city-dwelling Congress Hindus willing to throw away an otherwise economically viable region due to class and ethnic discrimination. If we keep going, Congress also staked a claim to Murshidabad, which despite being a Muslim-majority region, held the link to the Ganges, which connected to the ports in Calcutta. At this point is where it becomes a bit clandestine. There was an unspoken or silent agreement that Murshidabad was so necessary to have that the Hindu Congress would be willing to trade it off for the region of Khulna, a region the Muslims had wanted. The catch is that Khulna was a Hindu majority region. What's more, the smaller parties realised that if they could secure their own regions, which are more central or southwest of Bengal, this would lead to them being in power and government once the boundary had been drawn. It would minimise competition from other Hindi parties in the eastern regions. What emerges then is a very canny and shrewd understanding from these local and state politicians who recognize the long-term gains if they played their cards well. And all in all, The Hindi parties were willing to sacrifice about six major Hindi majority regions for geography, economy, and political factionalism. So to return to the surgery metaphor, by the time the surgeon came to the drawing board, he realises that there's about 50 other surgeons also standing there with 10 blades in their hands. And at this point of our understanding, the idea of a fresher like Cyril Radcliffe listening to all of these canny backroom agreements is laughable if the situation, wasn't so dire. So what was the end result? West Bengal, which was India, received 35% of the people, with 36% of the land, of which 29 were Muslims. East Bengal, meaning East Pakistan, received 64% of the people, with 63% of the land, of which 29% were Hindu. The whole of Murshidabad, that Muslim majority area, went to West Bengal, and Khulna, The Hindu majority area went to East Pakistan. And it goes without saying that Calcutta went to India as well and even the northern regions of Darjeeling and some of Shalpiguri also went to India, rejecting the Muslim League's claims about territorial contiguity. In many ways, the end result favoured the claims from the Indian Congress, perhaps not surprising when right from the start Mountbatten had agreed to do things the way Nehru and Congress had wanted. The Muslim League felt bitterly slighted. The Hindi majority of Khulna and the Muslims in Murshidabad woke up to find themselves on the wrong side of the border. The frustration and understandable anxiety ran high. The Khulna district committee kicked up a storm and petitioned for inclusion into West Bengal. People weren't stupid, they knew that there had been a backroom exchange. And so aggrieved they were, the Khulna committee demanded for a swap fix, even though, and this is where it you know, the layers keep unraveling in this messy situation, a swap would still mean that the Hindus in Murshidabad would be in the same position as the Hindus of Khulna were in. So as we can see then, the whole operation would result in a burst blood vessel one way or another. And it ought to be stated as well that the frustration and communal tension which overspilled wasn't so much a critique of partition itself, it really was more of a panic-stricken people who realised too little too late that they had been shut out of the communal homeland their politicians had promised them. Rumours flew around unchallenged of more boundary alterations or that more neighbourhoods were going to be swapped which fueled hope for some that they would join their majority brethren and fear in others that they would be sacrificed and turned into a minority. The results of the partition affected people in everyday life in numerous ways. Historians have only recently had access to archives of local councils and police stations which can give us a sense of how deeply the partition affected people in the short and long term. The border cut along rivers, straight down fields and villages. The same person who owned one plot of land suddenly lost it. The boundary ruptured agrarian communities and criminalised previously legal activities. When one sharecropper crossed the line to bring home his share of paddy, he was beaten up and thrown into jail. The militias on the border took measures into their own hands and punitively carried out punishments. Accounts of farmers and traders being shot, if found on the wrong side, are endless. The issue extended so far as to cattle grazing. If your cow strayed too far, another villager on the other side could claim it. In one case, an Indian Muslim crossed over to retrieve one of his cows which had strayed into the East Pakistan zone. He was caught by a patrol and beaten to death. A doctor from West Bengal, who often did some work across the Nadia border into East Bengal, was arrested during one work visit, had his medicine and instruments confiscated, and was forced to pay a hefty fine. He lost his job, and his patients from East Bengal lost their doctors. The losses worked both ways. And lastly, families were separated. Visits to relatives was equally risky, and as Chatterjee points out, Even if their stories are not recorded in police archives, their experiences carry on as part of lived memory and folklore. The border thus created conflict, and the conflict in turn strengthened the border's presence, a vicious cycle created by the government. To conclude then, we now have an understanding that the aims of partition fell short of what it set out to do. In the case of the Bengal Commission, communal solidarity was sacrificed in no small way when the realities of territory, economy, and personal or political ambition came to the fore. At the same time, once partition settled, it was accepted and viewed as final, sacred in many ways, hotly contested, and fiercely protected. It shaped people's identities, their sense of belonging, and partition has been here to stay as an ever-present mark for generations yet. So how did the operation end? Tatterjee concludes that the border was not drawn with any sense of precision or detail. Rather, it was hastily drawn up by the British with a significant amount of pressure from the Indian parties and their politicians. And finally, she argues that referring to the process as surgical also subconsciously implies that it was done in a pain-free and aseptic theatre room. The reality has shown how crude, bloody and violent the process was. It shattered countless lives for the average villager or farmer, it just seemed irrational, making no sense, and that illogic amplified its terror. And when we analyse how the commission set about drawing the border, the justifications were deeply dishonourable. Thank you for listening to episode 4 of the Voicemails from History podcast. This was your host, Mr Amin. Stay tuned for the next episode.